0: natural disasters, security breaches, port congestion, terrorist attacks, malevolence lurks in global supply chains. Hi everybody, I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Far too many possible supply chain disruptions that can be named. It always seems as though we're preparing for the last disaster, not the next one. Yet companies are expected to withstand whatever terrible event might occur. Whether they're equal to the task is another matter entirely. Today I'm speaking with Chloe Demrovsky, Executive Director of DRI International, or the Disaster Recovery Institute, a nonprofit organization that helps companies and governments to prepare for and recover from disasters. It's an issue that absolutely has to be addressed. In 2014, the top four natural disasters caused $32.8 billion in damages, and the year wasn't even that bad in a relative sense. We're talking today about what organizations should be doing to protect their supply chains, and, in the process, we're exploding some common misconceptions about which events have the biggest impact on business. Sometimes the greatest danger lurks within the mundane. So here is my conversation with Chloe Demrowski. Well, Chloe Demrowski, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bob. I'm happy to be here. And I'm very happy to talk about Supply Chain Disaster Recovery, but first of all, would you tell me a little bit about DRI International?
1: Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Disaster Recovery Institute International was founded in 1988. We're the leading nonprofit that helps organizations prepare for and recover from disasters. The way that we do this is through training, certification, and thought leadership. We have certified professionals currently in over 100 countries, and we provide training in 50 countries.
0: Was there any particular disaster or event that caused you to launch the organization at the time it, it, it was born?
1: That's a good question. I, I think it really came out of the origin of disaster recovery and the growing importance of technology in the workplace. But, of course, it's been a long time since then, and it's well, certainly before my time.
0: And we certainly have seen a whole variety of different kinds of disruptions and disasters and what I think you referred to also as malevolence in the supply chain since that time. Today, what types of disruptions or disasters should we most be worried about?
1: Well, I think that we have seen for a long time a real focus on natural disasters and in the preparedness space and the emergency response, business continuity, disaster recovery, and all the related disciplines. That's sort of the the early um, framework for talking about what we do. And in fact, you know, they certainly still are a major cause for concern. 2014's top four natural disasters caused a collective $32.8 billion of damage to businesses with flooding across Pakistan and India, making up a third of this figure, according to one study. Um, But, of course, that reflects an improvement on previous years. 2014 was actually a pretty good year for supply chain events. There were no severe disruptions on the scale of the the 2011 Thailand floods, uh, the 2011 Japan earthquake and tsunami, or 2012 Hurricane Sandy here in New York, which is where I'm based. I think, though, it is important to keep in mind that A common mistake that organizations make is that they focus on dramatic events. They talk about the highest impact risks and disaster scenarios. But in in fact, uh, research into supply chain impact indicates that smaller, frequent disruptions are are actually more costly in aggregate than those precipitated by high impact but less frequent events. At least 80% report at least one instance of a supply chain disruption, and nearly 75% of respondents still do not have full visibility of their supply chain, according to the Global Risk Report out of uh, the World Economic Forum.
0: What an interesting thing, because I would have thought that the so-called black swans, the things, the big things that don't come along very often, but when they do hit, they hit hard. I would have thought those would have entailed the highest cost. You're saying that's not the case at all? What
1: we see is the aggregate of the smaller events tends to lead to a lot of cost, and there tends to be a lot of focus on the higher impact events because they're very dramatic. Um, They provide a good business case, but a lot of organizations suffer from risk psychology and thinking, it's never going to happen to me. So uh, what we tend to focus on in our model is on the mundane over the dramatic because we find that this really helps businesses to make key strategic decisions using risk management and business continuity as the framework.
0: Do you cover some of the so-called more mundane potential disruptions such as the West Coast port labor slowdown that, that struck our ports here for a number of months in, the last, in over the last year, stuff like that?
1: Exactly. You know, we saw that the port slowdown really had caused major disruptions across the board, and we're going to see those disruptions in terms of lag for a long time to come. It's not as dramatic. There aren't as many pictures in the news. It's really only being covered by the business media, but it certainly does have an impact.
0: So there's always this question, this philosophical question about whether companies should be preparing in such a way as to prevent disruptions in their supply chain or to cope with disruptions as they happen. The latter, of course, reflecting the fact that we can barely control, if any, uh, most of the disruptions that happen – preparedness or agility after the fact? What is more important or are they both equally important?
1: I think that's a great question. And, you know, it really comes down to what we're seeing as the relationship between enterprise risk management and business continuity management. The two actually have very different origins. Risk management really came out of insurance buying, hazard mapping for an organization, and that's all about figuring out what the probability of an event occurring is and then the cost of mitigating it and then determining whether or not you want to take that that step in order to mitigate the risk. Business continuity had a very different origin. It really came from, as mentioned before, information technology and disaster recovery, or in some cases from physical security, depending on the type of organization. So business continuity is all about safeguarding human life. It's about minimizing confusion. It's about uh, during the crisis itself, um, you're reducing your dependency on specific personnel. You're minimizing loss of assets, revenue, customers. It's really about focusing on the survival of the organization, the protection of your critical business function in the event that something does happen. So the two really work very well hand in hand. Um, but what we see on our side is a business continuity model can really help you to move forward during the events of a crisis by focusing more on an impact based model rather than a cause approach.
0: And how have companies approached it? I mean, in, within organizations, have they tended to emphasize more en- enterprise risk management, business continuity management, or, scarily enough, neither of those? <laughs> Well, you know, it,
1: it, the Harvard Business Review report did conclude that only 20% of organizations actually use risk management as a primary driver for decision-making. So we see that this is a key competitive advantage for those companies that are future-thinking enough to include this in their model.
0: 20% as we speak now, you think? Mm-hmm. I mean, that is the figure that is... I, in terms I, that of
1: strategic is... business, business uh, decisions. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I guess, in other words, what they do is they do it on a on an event-by-event event basis, mm-hmm. right? A flood comes up, they deal with a flood. You know, a port slowdown comes up, they, they deal with that. I'm still shocked to hear you say that, considering the severity of the things that have happened in the last few years. You would think they would have learned their lesson.
1: Right. And we are seeing in some organizations what they'll do is they'll push it down to the operational level. That's what they've done traditionally. But we're seeing increasing increasing in importance within the organization to becoming a senior-level problem and even a board level problem.
0: Then there's a side issue that almost merits an entire discussion all by itself but is also related to this and that is the issue of supply chain cybersecurity and probing the vulnerabilities in that. Does that get tied into the risk management um, agenda as well, or is that uh, somewhere out there as a whole separate initiative?
1: A lot of times that's going to be covered by your IT department, but we do see that business continuity professionals are increasingly having to deal with the impact of technology. Both unplanned IT failures that are accidental or caused by things like outages or weather disruptions, but also because of malicious attacks, cyber attacks, and malevolence in the supply chain. But what they're doing, less than focusing on the technology aspects of it, which will be handled by IT, they're focusing on, okay, if we don't have access to our technology, how are we going to protect our core business? How are we going to protect our information? How are we going to continue to operate so that we can stay in business and move through it? And that's really the power of a business continuity impact-based model, because business continuity differs in the sense that we're looking less at all of the possible risks that could occur. And there's a lot of focus and there's a lot of conversation about talking about all of the things that could go wrong. A lot of conversation, a lot of time gets spent there. What we say is something happened. How do we fix it? And the way that you do that is really breaking it down into four potential categories of effects. That makes it much easier to determine what action to take. Those four Categories tend to be facilities problems. Something has happened to my facility, and I can't access it due to a fire, due to a flood, something like a pandemic even, um, a terrorist attack, um, an operational problem. this could be a processing error, this could be a supply chain problem, it could be a transit strike, it could be a labor strike, it could be a port slowdown. Something has happened, and I can't perform my core functions. Then a technology uh, problem, as we mentioned, a network problem, some sort of hardware failure, a virus, um, some sort of attack, and I can't use my technology. Or an organizational problem, and this is where we really see the importance of senior leadership coming in. If there's been a merger and acquisition, how does that affect my ability to deliver my product? If there's been a succession issue, an intellectual property issue, we're seeing lots of those recently, um, an audit issue, a financial issue, something like that.
0: How, how interesting that you do cite that fourth one because I'm betting that a lot of companies wouldn't consider it. When they think of disruption, they would think of that as just business events, and yet it certainly is a potential, does have the potential for disrupting supply chains as much as the other three.
1: It definitely does. And we're seeing this move away from both risk management and business continuity recently, more to a conversation about resilience. And resilience is all about the ability for an organization to bounce back. And that doesn't have to be from a negative event. It can be from anything that has a large impact on the organization, that can come from a positive as much as it can come from a negative. So let's say you have a really successful PR campaign for your product and suddenly there's overwhelming demand for it that shuts down your website or you can't actually deliver the product to the consumers in time, that ends up being a great threat to your organization that's really generated out of something positive.
0: It's interesting you should take that approach because I was thinking that given the range of potential risks, it's just so wide ranging. there's so many different things that can go wrong with the global supply chain. It made me wonder whether it's really possible to have a sort of one size fits all business continuity plan. But it sounds like if you're, if you're shifting the emphasis on, on, as you say, on bouncing back and resilience, that kind of addresses that concern, doesn't it?
1: It does. There's certainly no way to have a one-size-fits-all approach, but some of the same key best practices will work throughout um, different types of planning. So if you use the framework to apply, that will then provide you a good basis for action. And, of course, that is important for your core business, but also for your vendors and for your suppliers. Um, we don't actually like to think it, about it so much as a supply chain, which implies a linear process. I think it's more helpful to think about it as a supply network. So you have your suppliers, and then they have their suppliers, and then they have their suppliers. So you have your tier one, your tier two, your tier three, and you're sort of thinking about all of them together. And the key idea of this network approach—it's—it's it's really developed in the sense that it's more—it's a more flexible. to look at it, and information can flow not just top-down, but also bottom-up. So in the sense that we've seen the management model for large companies change over the last couple of decades to be less hierarchical and less top-down, Um, and move to more of a network management model. I think we need to see more of the same thing in terms of supply chain management as well. There's this concept that, you know, all of the power lies with the end buyer, but that can make your suppliers afraid to communicate up the chain when they do have a problem, which can then lead to a problem for the end buyer. And that will, that can potentially have the same impact, even though it's not actually coming from within your core business. It's coming from a
0: supplier. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, Chloe, that over the last few decades, analysts and experts have been trying forever to come up with a new phrase to replace the phrase supply chain. But uh, unfortunately, I think we're stuck with it. So maybe we're going to use the word chain, but we're going to have to think network. True. Uh, Yeah. So let's talk about some specific best practices. It might be uh, elements in this uh, so-called resilience or bounce back kind of strategy. What are the best companies doing out there? What are some of the techniques that they have employed that have proven to be of value?
1: Sure. I think you have to first um, conduct a thorough business impact analysis that includes your suppliers. And what that means is figuring out who your most important suppliers are. This is something that, you know, procurement is very good at. Um, but the business continuity people should also be included in that. They will help to identify, you know, for example, if you have a single source versus a sole source supplier, and then what are some of the kind of good strategies that you can deploy for using that? So for example, you know, if you have a sole source supplier and that's determined to be a really critical supplier for delivering your product, you're probably going to have to back up additional stock if that's possible. You're going to have to allow for downtime in your service level agreements. Um, you're going to have to ensure your supplier has business continuity capabilities and that doesn't mean just reading their plan or checking a box or putting it in your contract, but really having a conversation and ideally holding tabletop exercises and testing alongside them more like a partner. And then if it's really important and you only have that sole source supplier, um, it might be a good idea for you to either acquire the supplier or redesign the process or product in, in the worst case scenario. And we did see this with a major razor blade manufacturer where the um, The the machine that was used to sharpen all of their razor blades was actually produced by only one factory in the world, and the man who ran it was 80 years old, had no succession plan, was planning to donate the whole thing to charity when he passed. So this major razor blade manufacturer went, oh, this is really a problem. I think we better acquire them, and that's what they ended up doing.
0: Yeah, And of course. You talk about multiple suppliers. I think uh, I, I'm not sure if it was Intel that said that found out they had they had multiple suppliers uh, in Thailand, but unfortunately, all those suppliers were located within the same floodplain. So, so much for that, right?
1: Right. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it, of course, we advocate moving to a multi-source strategy, and that's all about balancing your risk priorities with your strategic initiatives, your your efficiency priorities, right? So. On the efficiency side, you're always going to want to streamline things, but really you need some diversity there. And one of the key things is you have to be able to shift supply among those different multi-sources in the event of a disruption. But if they're in the same geographic location, that could be taken out by a major disaster. We saw a lot of that uh, with the Japanese earthquake and tsunami. We saw it with the floods in Thailand. So where possible, it's good to have that geographic disbursement, because otherwise, All of your suppliers could be taken out at once, and then it looks like a sole source.
0: And you can't just have this B supplier waiting in the wings to whom you give no business on a regular basis, and then all of a sudden you have to go running to them in a disaster and saying, please serve me. I'm assuming that would not be a very effective strategy.
1: No, and there's a really classic case study about that, which is um, going back a little bit in history, but it it still applies very much today, um, which was that, Nokia, it's a Nokia versus Ericsson story. So there was a 10-minute fire in Albuquerque, New Mexico at a Phillips microchip plant. Ten minutes, it was out by the time the fire department arrived. Not a whole lot of damage, so they thought. But of course, chips are developed in a clean room environment. So the whole clean room was destroyed. The, The supplier called up their customers and said, you know, hey, we have a little problem. Don't worry, we'll be back up in a week. Ericsson took them at their word. They didn't have a backup plan in place. They didn't have other suppliers to go to. Nokia went, hold on a second. They moved it up the chain to senior management um, and didn't just keep it at the operational level. They really said, hey, I think this might be a bigger problem. Let's investigate make sure that we're working with other suppliers, other Philips plants, but trying to get our hand on as many chips as possible in case this disruption ends up being larger than we thought. So what happened was, by the time, of course, uh, this supplier was back uh, was backed up for over a month, and by the time Ericsson decided to do something about it, Nokia had already bought up all of the supply of available chips, and Ericsson ended up reporting a loss of 400 million from a 10-minute factory fire in New Mexico.
0: Amazing. All right. So we have supplier conversations, supplier diversification. There's one definite best practice. What else? What about uh, in terms of, like, uh, exercises, drills, and contingency plans for exactly what you're going to do, hitting the ground running in the case of a disruption?
1: Right. So it's really important to, to plan and exercise with your suppliers. And, of course, that starts in the contract by requiring that they have plans. But then you have to actually go over those plans with them. And it's important to define what you mean by a plan exactly. So you could say, have a business continuity plan, do a business impact analysis, but they could have an entirely different definition for what that means to them versus what you're expecting of them. So that's where you really get into it on the exercising level and on the testing level. So that involves actually going to their facilities, reviewing their plans, making them a partner in terms of that testing and exercising. Of course, a lot of suppliers and our small businesses who are working further up in the supply chain from the consumer-facing brands, which tends to be a larger company, they tend to have more resource allocated to this area, and they tend to be better prepared. Small businesses are the least prepared segment. So even though it's scary at first to kind of display your potential vulnerabilities to your customer, ultimately, if there is this trusted relationship built through testing and exercising, they really benefit from having the knowledge and understanding and the best practice that the larger companies can bring. So we are seeing this in the most mature models that these companies have been exercising with their suppliers um, for a number of years, and that's proven to be very effective in the most mature programs, what we're seeing now is a focus on, what do I do about third-party suppliers? Especially out of the Rana Plaza factory uh, collapse in Bangladesh two years ago, we've just passed the second anniversary of that. A lot of organizations are saying, wow, that was a third-party supplier for most of these brands, and that had a devastating impact on their brands.
0: Yeah, and not not just a third-party supplier, but in some cases, at least they claimed, a supplier they didn't even know they had Right. So how do you prepare to to deal with a supplier you don't even know exists?
1: Right. So you have to understand the actual capacity of your own suppliers to deliver so that you're not just dumping additional orders on them that they can't necessarily fulfill, that you're kind of wishful thinking, hoping that they can deliver on. Because if you give them an order in excess of their capacity, they're going to shop it out to third-party suppliers, and you may or may not know about them. But in terms of the impact to your brand value, it's exactly the same. That's image of your label in the rubble is devastating to the consumer-facing brand, much more so than to the
0: supplier. How good a job do you think companies are doing in their internal contingency plans, you know, like tasking who within the organization internally is responsible for what in the event of a disruption?
1: I think it varies dramatically based on what industry you're in. And all of them have different models. So those that have regulatory requirements that are quite stringent are very prepared. So financial institutions, for example, they're highly regulated, plus their customers are demanding it. So between those two aspects, they're very prepared. They spend a lot of time and a lot of resource focusing on this. Healthcare, of course, especially in the U.S., has a very strong regulatory component that requires them to be more prepared. After what we saw with the hospitals in Hurricane Sandy, we're seeing even more emphasis on preparedness. But then if you look at, say, arts organizations, cultural organizations, a lot of them don't have any resources dedicated to this at all. In fact, they've never considered it. So if you look at museums, theaters, dance companies, they're really not prepared at all. And that's a a sector that nobody really thought of as as needing preparedness plans. But, of course, a hurricane affects them, too.
0: Do you think the so-called war room approach is a good one for most companies?
1: Um, yeah, I think it can help. You certainly need to have your emergency operations center prepared. And, and the way that you do that, of course, is to prepare in advance exactly what you're going to do and how you're going to approach it. So what we teach actually is the 10 professional practices. This is our standard um, that is available through DRI, and we create it with a team of volunteer experts that we bring together from a variety of large companies usually fortune 500 companies and, and government actors and they go through it and they figure out what kind of analysis you need to do in advance how do you initiate and manage a project how do you conduct a risk assessment what your business impact analysis process looks like and then how do you determine strategies based on that analysis how do you test an exercise And how do you communicate with your public, with your customers, with your staff, and ultimately with external agencies as well?
0: You know, sometimes when things get trendy, I'm thinking back like in the days when quality was a big deal with a capital Q. And now risk is sort of going in that direction, too, with some companies. The impulse of a company is to put a new person in the C-suite. In this case, we occasionally hear about the chief risk officer. Is that a good idea, or is it a better idea to kind of salt the risk responsibility throughout the organization? Who who should own this? It's definitely going to depend on the model. We definitely see the chief risk officer being a new position. In a
1: lot of cases, it will report up to the chief financial officer or the chief operating officer. If there is a regulatory requirement, structured around this. That will often determine your reporting structure, but I definitely think it's a good idea for people to have somebody in the C-suite whose job it is to say, hey, maybe we should consider the downside of what we're talking about. It can help you to combat groupthink at the highest levels, to have somebody who's assigned to play your devil's advocate.
0: So in terms of best practices, in terms of leaders in this business, some case studies that might have been out there or any companies that you might know, are there any particular companies that you can recommend that uh, are, have been particularly good in this area that other companies might benchmark against?
1: Well, we're seeing um, a number of them, of course, uh, are presenting at our conference. The, the DRI conference is an annual event that happens in various cities in the United States, and that's where we bring our certified professionals to share best practice. So um, a number of the leaders are going to present there. I'm not going to call it a a specific company. There are a lot of them that are doing well. But we see that those who are really following best practice and and considering it uh, in order to build their plans are doing well.
0: When's the conference? The next conference is in March in Atlanta, Georgia. All right. uh, We're just about out of time, but i just kind of like you to give us a view of the future. I know you, I, I believe you've been quoted in the past as talking about how the extreme weather cycles we've been seeing are the new normal. I'm wondering in a larger sense, what is the new normal of risk? What do we have to be adapted to now? Or what do we have looking forward? What kinds of things should we prepare, be prepared for that maybe were not so much a problem in the past?
1: Sure. I, I talked about mundane risks as being a good approach for your analysis, but we certainly do see an increase in the number of macro risks, large geopolitical risks, and economic risks, and Environmental risks are growing. Societal risks. We see, um, the potential spread of infectious disease. Um, the impact of a water crisis could be absolutely enormous. And we're seeing that already on the west coast of the United States. We're seeing it in different places. Um, interstate conflict, of course, has, has a tremendous potential for negative consequences. And then, of course, the, the impact of unemployment or underemployment in young markets, um, can really destabilize some of these key markets that we're looking at for potential future growth. So it is a risky world with a lot of events that could occur that we should watch out for.
0: Well, Chloe, I think you've done a lot to kind of calm our nerves a little bit here and help us <laughs> to understand that there are ways to prepare against these potentially horrible disasters. So, Chloe Demrowski, I want to thank you so much for being with us today and helping us to understand this big picture of supply chain disaster recovery. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. That was my conversation with Chloe Demrovsky of DRI International, talking about the essentials of supply chain disaster recovery. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain.